Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Josie Warden, the RSA's Head of Regenerative Design, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's Thursday lunchtime event. And so today we've gathered together a brilliant panel of fashion makers and thinkers from across the UK and, and from across the pond, and really special thank you to Lillian for joining us so bright and early from New York this morning. Um, so our clothing system has enormous impacts, and in the wake of COP26, this conversation feels even more urgent. Um, and I can't wait to hear from our expert panel today on how we can push fashion to be even more ambi- ambitious and uh, achieve more holistic goals. So when we think about transforming fashion, we often think about the sustainability strategies of uh, big brands and global supply chains. But for today's conversation, we're going to start in a slightly different place um, and look at some very practical and locally based work, which is taking a regenerative approach to growing change in our landscape and in our communities before we kind of zoom out and look at the wider change this might signal for the industry. Um, So we're going to hear a short kind of scene setting statements from each of our panellists um, and in turn, and then we'll have a conversation together. And so if you're interested in finding out more about the RSA's work on regenerative design and on fashion in particular, then please check out the links in the YouTube chat. Um, and you can also get involved in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag join the regeneration. And we're really looking forward to hearing um, any contributions you have to make. Um, but we've got to get a lot to get through today, so let's get started. Um, and first up, it's my real pleasure to introduce Justine Aldersey-Williams. So Justine is a creative activist, uh, art textile artisan and educator specialising in botanical dyeing. And she's a director of The Wild Diary, where she devises rewilding rituals that reconnect pe- uh, people with natural fibres and colours that extend the life of their clothing. And she's also the founder of Northwest Fibre Shed, which is a collective of professionals developing a decentralised regenerative textile system. So Justine, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you. Um, And I'm going to hand over to you to to introduce yourself and a bit more about your work. Okay, yeah, well, you mentioned I'm a natural textile dyer and founder of um, Fibre Shed. Um, We are developing a regenerative textile system in Northwest England, but I want to kind of go a little bit more deeply into that term regenerative and what my understanding of that is. and to kind of contextualize so to me it means restoring our life support system so that it can restore us and right now this means giving back more than we take from the planet but ultimately it means living in right relationship or symbiosis with our environment to make it more understandable to myself one of my mentors Claire Dubois is the founder of um, the reforestation charity Tree Sisters she says that humanity needs to evolve from being a consumer species to a restorer species. And how people interpret the term regenerative depends on where they currently stand on this consumer-restorer continuum. For example, the default extractor-consumer mindset will tend to reduce, commodify, and capitalise on the concept of regenerative fashion, a term which, to my mind, is a bit of an oxymoron anyway. Um, in order to keep business as usual and perpetuate an economic system which has caused the climate crisis by being degenerative. At the other end of this continuum, we have the restorers who preserved their wildlife and soil health. Um, I'm really struck by the statistic from National Geographic that states that it's indigenous cultures who make up just 5% of the global population who are preserving 80% of the world's biodiversity. Now, organizations like Fibershed that I'm involved in 
honor this indigenous these indigenous origins of regenerative practice and are implementing solutions that actively restore rather than merely sustaining or worse destroying our planet and their ethos focuses on um, using local fibers local dyes and local labor because massive amounts of environmental and social exploitation can be reduced or eliminated by regionalizing or downsizing manufacturing so for example, in relation to clothing manufacturers, working regeneratively might involve divesting from fossil fuel-derived synthetic materials that currently make up about 70% of all clothing produced, to instead use renewable natural fibres and dyes grown in ways that draw carbon out of our overheated atmosphere back into our depleted soils. And to do this, we need textile crops integrated into our food farming systems, um, crucially using carbon farming techniques. Then when we have these textile crops, we need the processing equipment to bring it to market and make it viable. Now, in my work with Northwest England Fibre Shed, I'm collaborating with Patrick Grant from Social Enterprise Community Clothing, who you might know better as a judge on the BBC's Great British Sewing Bee. And also Super Slow Way, who are an arts commissioning organisation that run the British Textile Biennial. And we've been working this year on a project called Homegrown Homespun to start developing a regenerative soil to soil textile system here in the heartland of British textiles in northwest England. Um, We've started but from the ground up by planting two of the UK's forgotten fibre and dye crops, flax and woad, on urban land in Blackburn. And the main challenge has been um, to bring these textile crops back to UK's is, the, is a loss of skills. And there are no um, linen processing facilities in the entire country anymore. You can't process linen and you can't spin it in this country. So... In our prototype year, we did everything by hand, the way our pre-industrial ancestors did it. Um, and really, this, this kind of begs the question to me of why have generations for thousands of years been empowered with the skills of self-sufficiency and survivalism to make their own clothing when our so clever civilization in this culture can't do that? It's incredibly difficult to work sustainably and ethically. In, on the British Isles right now because we just don't have those facilities to, to do so or the, um, the crops um, which, are, which are no longer grown here. So we added to our challenge by trying to grow regeneratively and we've had advice from soil scientists who are monitoring the effects on soil health and biodiversity and we managed to get from seed to cloth in less than six months and the cloth is now being exhibited in Blackburn Museum until December the 18th. And we happily have got funding to upscale and reach our kind of second phase, which is to bring the line of jeans to market through Patrick's um, social enterprise community clothing in time for the next biennial in 2023. So we're, we're inspired by um, sort of mid-scale production models like the Harris Tweed model. We envisage a linen industry in, in the Northwest. And yeah, that's where we're up to. I mean, I can, I can delve way more deeply into the huge amount of challenges. Um, I think what's interesting to me is this holds a massive potential. The clothing industry has a massive potential to 
heal the climate crisis if we listen very carefully to those who are most impacted by the climate crisis. And it's not just about the loss of manufacturing infrastructure. There are actual um, deeper um, ramifications to working regeneratively. Um, there is an emotional element to our mass consumption that we, we need to tackle. We can set up all these lovely systems, but if people are still driven to buy and waste because it's fulfilling some kind of emotional need that is set up by our economic system, that is going to perpetuate um, in the long term the, the same sort of wastage, albeit um, with better renewable materials. So, yeah, it's it's a really intersectional, interesting discussion, and I feel like I'm overrunning on time. So I'm going to round up and perhaps delve more deeply during the questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know there's so there is so much in there that we can pull out in the conversation, <laughs> and so really looking forward to doing that and linking it up with. Um, others work too. So next up um, I'm going to introduce Dr Francesco Mazzarella. Francesco is a senior lecturer in fashion and design for social change at the London College of Fashion um, where he works for the Centre for Sustainable Fashion exploring the ways in which design activism can be used to create counter narratives towards sustainability in fashion and previously Francesco was AHRC Design Leadership Fellow Research Associate at Lancaster University with the aim to support design research for change. So it's really great to have you here today Francesco um, and I'll hand over to you to talk a bit more about your work and perspectives on this topic. Yes, uh, thanks Rosie and hi everyone. Um, as Rosie said, I, uh, my work is in fashion and design for social change and I use a design activism approach to design for sustainability. At Centre for Sustainable Fashion, since the inception of the centre, we our ambition was to build a transformed fashion system towards uh, ecological, social, cultural and environmental um, and economic sustainability. But my approach to uh, design for sustainability sustainability, it's to start from culture as an entry point to develop a more personal, authentic and perhaps even spiritual approach to a design for sustainability. Sustainability is a journey and mine starts from revitalizing cultural heritage, but also tackling social equalities and fostering social engagement, but also to make local economies flourish and enhance uh, environmental stewardship. I often work with uh, marginalized and uh, isolated communities and uh, um, in order to enable people to move from the feeling of, uh, of hopelessness and the feeling of uh, overwhelmed in response to the climate emergency to instead gain voice and agency and become agents of their own alternatives. I also believe that there is a need to decolonize fashion and the center sustainability, which is very much um, grounded uh, currently on Anglo-Saxon uh, approaches to sustainability. But instead, we need to also draw on indigenous knowledge and embed other sets of values in the shaping of the regenerative fashion system. To exemplify this, I will try and talk about a few projects I'm currently working on. At Centers for Sustainable Fashion, I'm working on the Fashion Values Program in partnership with Caring, Vogue Business and IBM. We are launching a series of online free courses aimed at nurturing a regenerative uh, uh, mindset and also change-making capabilities within an international community of learners. This year, we launched a challenge asking people how fashion can value nature. 
and and we are, we have received a multiplicity of uh, responses in terms of fashion products, services, and systems that can contribute to the shifting to shifting from an age of extraction to an age of regeneration. And more central to my own work is the Making for Change Waltham Forest project uh, on which I've been working on for the past years. This project uses fashion activism and reciprocal ways of making to create positive social change in an East London borough and build long lasting legacies within the local community. My approach in this is uh, what I call middle up down. In fact, uh, to uh, enable sustainability in communities, sometimes governments or NGOs are adopting top down strategies and delivering services, but they often lack the um, sensibility to address the specific needs and aspirations of communities. And instead, on the other hand, also bottom-up initiatives activating by communities often lack the resources or infrastructure to become sustainable over time. So my middle-up-down approach to this is to play the role of a bridge between bottom-up initiatives co-created with communities and services and strategies delivered by top-down organizations such as local government in my project. And in this context, I tend to activate change from within the system, adopting a quiet or indirect form of activism uh, as a situated and embedded approach to co-design uh, meaningful social change. And from this perspective, I, um, in response to uh, what we need actually for social change to happen, uh, I need that. Um, I believe that we need funding to support such initiatives, but also moving beyond the well-recognized role of the designer as a facilitator to also play the role of an activist. That means challenging the status quo and make things happen. But we also need to work collaboratively across different departments and not working in silos because we need holistic and systemic approaches to tackle sustainability challenges and also create an infrastructure to sustain change and support resilient communities. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to hear about your work and I'm really seeing so many links um, and with things that we're thinking about at the RSA and things that Justine has shared already. Um, and I'm sure that's going to continue. Um, we join, um, we're joined by Alice Robinson. So um, Alice is a regenerative fashion designer whose work has been shown at the London Design Festival, the Victorian Albert Museum, um, and her collection 11458 was acquired by the v in 2020. Um, she's a co-founder of Gradient Robinson, where they're developing an innovative and traceable new supply of vegetable tanned leather made from the hides of animals farmed on regenerative farms in the UK. Um, and we were delighted to work with um, Alice and also Sarah, her partner, who took part in the Rethink Fashion um, programme earlier this year, which was our learning journey that was held in partnership with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So it's really nice to see you again, Alice, um, and over to you to share some more about your work. Thank you so much for having me, Josie, and thank you for the introduction. So as Josie said, um, I'm co-founder of a new venture called Radio Robinson to produce a new supply of leather um, from the hides of animals raised on regenerative farms in the UK. And really our goal is to forge a connection between land stewardship and material culture. Um, I have a design background, an accessory background, and I felt uh, the, the disconnection myself when I wanted to be able to sort of understand the materials and the, and the sources of them um, when it came to creating my own work. Um, currently the leather 
industry is disconnected from farming in a way that there is no opportunity for farmers to know or choose the destiny of the hides that the animals they've raised go. And there's no option for designers to know really anything about the life of the animal that resulted in the leather they use. Um, therefore, my work explored ways in which the leather industry inter intersects with farms and trying, trying to investigate ways of working more closely can strengthen these systems and even build new ones. Um, we want to be able to align design and therefore consumption with what a landscape is suited to produce and therefore what raw materials it yields and therefore what the materials are that it offers and to the extent in which um, we have them at, at our hands. Um, I really like the saying of Kate Fletcher says that fibre follows food and I've really found that working as closely as possible with a farming and agricultural community um, as a designer and trying to sort of follow behind them to know what um, sort of where those connections can be made. I believe that designers uh, we can learn a great deal from farmers about balance and working with nature and about limitations and using them, using lim limitations as a, as a source of inspiration and creativity, which I think sometimes in the industry we, we lack because there's uh, so much capacity to create whatever you want to whatever extent in so many ways and and having, um, having uh, new creative restrictions on that to work in, bal in balance and in a regenerative way is, is um, a source of uniqueness and inspiration. Um, equally, I feel like there's a cross-industry collaboration is really key for building new systems that can support a shared goal in working restoratively. So our project is motivated by building recognition that farms raising animals with regenerative practices invest a great deal of resource and care to produce healthy food, steward land, and it is our belief that those animals should be fully and meaningfully utilised and we have a desire for those farms to receive maximum value and recognition for their exemplary practices. Our goal is to create a bioregional supply chain that results in leather, in a leather material that is expressive of place um, and there is an abundant opportunity to collaborate with the farming community here in the UK that is uniquely um, suited to growing grass and having animals on the land in a way that builds biodiversity and works um, with a regenerative approach to, to food and uh, community culture. Barriers to progress really lie in our lack of infrastructure, as um, so I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on later, but that's something that's really disappeared for us in terms of the leather production of the UK. And that really hinders our um, systems in creating and supporting localized uh, material production. Um, it's important for us as a business to understand the interdependency of shared stakeholders, both between the farming and fashion industry when it comes to material production and how that can be approached. For example, uh, many of the farms we work with um, rely on have a small scale approach to producing food and stewarding land and they sell directly to their customers who are really interested in uh, and desire traceable and local food um, and a sector that is a linchpin of that is um, small scale abattoirs which we've had a um, had a really really wrapping 
decline in closures of in recent years. And um, the sales or disposal of hides and skins are a point of where I believe um, sort of an engaged design community can see how we can um, sort of reach forward and, and create um, new systems to support um, the flourishing of local and regional um, food and land um, practices. So we want the material we produce to inspire unaware of land stewardship and natural systems. So we will be offering our leather to brands and designers seeking ethical and ecological materials and telling the story of regenerative practices in the UK. And it's our aim to inspire a commitment um, to practices that prioritise animal welfare and biodiversity and healthy ecosystems. Great, thanks so much, Alice. Um, and finally, I'm really thrilled to introduce Butera's senior sustainability strategist, Lillian Liu. Um, and we're going to zoom out a little bit now. We've been looking at some quite kind of place-specific, I guess, interventions in fashion. Um, but Lillian's work is helping high-profile fashion, tech and consumer um, goods and, and beauty companies to set quite bold sustainability visions. Um, and Lillian also has worked at the UN to mobilise companies to take action on the SDGs um, and help launch a sustainable fashion movement in China um, and has been named one of the Green Biz 30 Under 30 leaders. So it's brilliant to have you here today, Lillian, and thanks again for getting up so early. And it'd be really great to hear your perspective on what, you know, how are these kind of changes in the idea of regeneration um, are impacting the fashion industry as a whole and what kind of changes are you seeing coming, coming down the line? Yes, thank you, Josie. It's great to be here. You know, I work with a lot of different companies and fashion is obviously a very important sector uh, for us as Futara and have a big passion for it. Um, and what I think is really exciting right now is that um, there's a lot more understanding around how social and environmental issues are interlinked. So we've talked a lot about that interdependence today and um, I think there was a real awakening last year in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests specifically um, in terms of just what environmental justice is and how climate change, air, water pollution impacts communities. And so I think that's a really, really important understanding that is happening. And, you know, shortly after we saw from the human rights crisis in Xinjiang in the cotton farming industry, again, um, I think for many that was an awakening in terms of um, how our material choices impact social lives and, so, and, and social sustainability. And so I think that is something that is changing in terms of what we mean by sustainability. And I think that the concept of regenerative is really great because it doesn't silo different issues, right? You're really thinking holistically about the approach and the impact. And I think what I'm seeing too is that now we have these influential companies that are really uh, setting up these more ambitious strategies and initiatives. And I know Francesco mentioned Caring as one of them. They have obviously done a lot around biodiversity and having a net positive impact on nature. Um, you know, mostly the approach taken is um, coming in with investment, which I think is you know, which I think smaller players are looking for these big companies to do. You've got Ralph Lauren, Allbirds, other companies too that are going in, uh, setting up funds and partnerships to really build capabilities on the ground. Um, so that's also really exciting and something we didn't really see a couple of years ago and it's been moving quite fast. 
Um, at the more global high level, um, as part of uh, my work with Futera, we, we work with the UN uh, Climate Change Fashion Charter. So we're one of the co-chairs there. And um, the new, the renewed charter actually just came out. And in that, you know, you also see a mention to regenerative practices in terms of sourcing. And so again, to me, that's like an indication of the industry taking this seriously. And it's really exciting to see uh, because it's the first. And so I think it's really great news. Um, of course, we're not there yet. Um, I think the main, the majority of the action that we see is still more focused on doing less bad is not so much doing good or doing more good. And so, you know, I want to be real with that. Um, and I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of shifting from the resource minimization to resource regeneration and generation overall. Um, you know, many of my fellow panelists have real experience working on the ground and so much has already been said around more tangible things around regenerative concepts. And the final thing that I want to add is that, you know, working with a lot of these companies, it's clear that the concept of regeneration is quite complex and it's hard to grasp. And, you know, I think it's really important to start helping companies understand how you can integrate this concretely. You know, what are the metrics? What are the KPIs? What are the processes in a, in a tangible way um, that defines regenerative design, that defines regenerative company and regenerative community? Like at those levels and thinking about it at scale. And I know, you know, there's a lot of great work going on uh, and you guys are doing the heavy lifting. Um, I think it's important to bring that together and um, and create that guidance because right now a lot of companies are figuring it out on their own. Uh, and so it's a lot harder to have consistent results as well. I think we are starting to shape that vision, but we need to get very tangible about what that means as a business. Um, yeah, I think it's an exciting movement that I really am... I'm so excited to learn about all these initiatives and I'm sure this is going to continue to grow. So thank you. Thanks very much, Lillian. Um, I think it's been really interesting when we were thinking about putting this panel together as well of how you kind of represent all the different parts of this system because as we're saying we are trying to look at it in a very holistic way um it's about kind of moving together the many different kind of facets um and I think that does make the conversation quite tricky to um to explain in, in succinctly. So I've got these kind of these demonstrations in really nice ways of explaining that, exploring that. And I think we've just been making some notes as we've all been talking around it, because there's a big, a couple of big things that are coming through around kind of um, this shift being really about mindsets and understanding, seeing ourselves differently in relation to the systems that we're a part of, whether that's being part of nature or whether that's seeing the kind of connections between social and environmental distribution, kind of, um, making things that change that's appropriate to place and context and how can lots of people be involved in that and then particularly kind of co-creation so citizens being involved in shaping that change um, and I'm wondering if you think about all of those things together and I'm sure there are other bits that you'd add in if there is a is there is there a tension between um, the way we think what we think fashion is at the moment and what it could potentially be and is there a tension there between kind of fashion as a system and clothing as a as something that's essential to people is, is there anyone got any thoughts around those kinds of 
is there a tension between what we're currently seeing of fashion and what we think fashion is and where we think it might need to move to and whether that's is there a kind of tension at that being at odds with where we want to go I feel that tension <laughs> yeah I mean it made it quite hard to prepare today because um I'm quite triggered by the word fashion actually um I I see it as part of a kind of capitalist colonialist system I think it's quite hard to separate those two things out quite often um I really would like to see an empowered clothing system emerging that a place-based empowered clothing system emerging um yeah I, I, de I definitely think that there's um difficulties in how we define that and how we think outside of what we've been ingrained into you know we're part of this system that is killing its life support system this culture that well I would think of it more like a cult actually than a culture you know this kind of perpetual growth mindset which which um the fashion system predominantly fast fashion is a part of how that that requires many systemic changes including our economic system you know and, and how do we kind of navigate that so I have questions you know I don't have solutions but I'm very very glad to kind of have this forum to to share thoughts with all you guys and try and develop some solutions. Were you going to come in there Francesco so you unmuted? Yeah uh, yes actually yeah there is a tension also in the word fashion itself but if we consider as you suggest clothing instead actually I think there is no um, uh, the, the notion of uh, buying less but also regeneration could be more um, um, actually there, are, there is less of a tension but I think as well we again going back to the point of also the centering sustainability if we also look at uh, other um, approaches to sustainability for instance communities uh, in the global south they are using already very uh, much approaches to uh, buying less or buy better or repairing clothes or making our own clothes and also maybe also making things together because then uh, in that way through the joy of making things together we can activate resilient communities in place that are flourishing and thriving and for instance um, just to show some other examples um uh, kate fletcher she did the project craft of use some years ago that was looking really much at this uh, um of the exactly the usership instead of uh, ownership but also um it, more recently she's also worked on the fashion ecologies uh, project in a small town in northwest of england that really points out to alternative approaches to uh fashion in a post-growth scenario um but also as well, uh, uh, there are other organizations like uh, Lone Hood uh, in London that actually are creating a rental revolution of uh, clothing. Or in my work with communities in East London, we uh, upcycle pre-consumer uh, waste fabric with uh, marginalized women uh, in a deprived uh, uh, area and then uh, create uh, uh, clothes, uh, clothes for donation. So as well, overall, this is shaping a new regenerative system of fashion and of Hopefully we will try to solve the, some of these tensions. Thank you. I think it's a really interesting shift from the, uh, or potentially shift from kind of a top-down change into like what can grow up. And I wonder, um, Lillian, if you have any thoughts on that and how ha how can fashion as a as a kind of industry um, is there a bit of an identity crisis with what with what's happening and how can it kind of think about those different shifts, particularly when it comes to things like decentralisation, which are quite different to the, a lot of the business models that exist at the moment. Yes, um, 
there, I mean, fashion is always evolving, right? So it's of course not static. Um, and I think this conversation is a proof of that. Um, I think that there is definitely a lot of new business models coming out and ownership was mentioned, you know, thinking about usability over ownership. And I think, you know, the question I wanted to ask as well is, do we need to own everything? Um, and we definitely see that with the companies we're working on to, you know, trying new circular models, um, thinking about or exploring uh, fabrics that are different, alternative, regenerative. Um, so a lot of that is going on. It is still small scale. It is hard to scale. And, you know, you it's very hard to do that in isolation as one company. So you do need to come together with others and you need designers, you need local groups, um, you know, you need that bottom up approach as well. And we haven't really talked much about policy today. We haven't talked so much about the public, um, but that's definitely one for the governments to support as well. Um, you know, things like consumer extended producer responsibility helps a lot, um, but there's also, um, you know, more work that can be done. Like just uh, now during COP, we saw that there was uh, actually a call for preferential trade agreements for importing, you know, organic cotton, low fiber materials from over 50 companies, like calling for governments to help them with this. And so we're seeing that interesting conversation happening at the global level too. Um, and uh, yes, I think some governments have stepped up the challenge and we have the EU Circular Economy Action Plan. There are these things that are happening, but, you know, again, it's it's um, focused on one part of the world and the world is very big and fashion is global. Um, there's also something really interesting about um, a lot of recent reports that, that have come out pointing out misinformation and data gaps in fashion. And again, I think companies are operating on, on limited information, uh, which also makes it more challenging. Um, and so uh, as civil society, as practitioners, as academia, we can help to uh, create independent research around that. Um, you know, even just that number, uh, how big is the carbon impact of the fashion industry? Uh, the most recent report says 2%. I've seen 8%, I've seen 10%. You know, it's just um, really difficult because the, comp uh, the system is complex um, and more investment into that research piece and the data piece will also be really key just so that we can make some informed decisions. Thank you. And I think a lot of what you were saying there really um, picks up on something that I thought I really loved and what you said, Francesco, about the kind of infrastructure piece and this idea of like middle up down of like what is it that is will enable all of these different changes that are happening at different levels to really connect and to create that overall systemic change. And I know um, Alice, in the conversations we've been having, that um, there's a lot of kind of infrastructure support that is needed. And I wonder if anything you could share from, from what you've been doing around the challenges that you see, but also potential opportunities um, if we can create work with, I guess, work with policy, work with um, uh, civil society institutions to kind of think about what that infrastructure might look like. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's something that we've been um, really um, sort of surprised. Well learning about as a business is that um, there are 
parts of the infrastructure that sort of belong to the food systems, but cross over into our fashion systems very much. And um, just for example, uh, leather is graded based on its sort of its um, as a, in its raw state, sort of on its scratches, on its size, on its weight. Different breeds um, are are vastly different, and they are um, segregated based for sort of a, an in, a leather industry criteria, not on agricultural practices, which might result in them looking a bit differently, less uniform, and m- potentially and quite often a lot more character, which is something that in the fashion industry we like to have um, well, historically, you know, uniformity and sort of a vast uh, um, scales of the same product and sort of treat it as off the roll. And I think when it comes to working with natural fibres, which are sort of an integral piece of working with um, uh, food systems that we would like to support, there has to be a recalibration in what we then expect as a design community to be working with and also be communicating with to um, the customers. And that really is something that we're coming up against because um, there is more character, there is more uniformity and there needs to be a different expectation in in how we um, consume goods that doesn't sit within the narrative of um you know trend based and sort of extensive consumption and so i think it's it's having that more of a holistic vision of of what it is you're working with what it is um you're sort of buying into and what um what that really means both for a designer to be working with and making and also for um for who you're selling it to and what they know um how to care for it and and see those pieces in a different light. Um, I think that our struggle is um, sort of intersecting an industry that sees it as a commodity to be globally exported, but actually it is really integral piece to strengthening um, a local food community also. Thank you. and I wonder if it feels like that, that is a real shift in kind of mindsets and the way designers are engaging. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder if it's similar for you, Justine, um, like how you kind of create that mindset shift and what you're kind of seeing um, that's needed in that infrastructure to support that and to support people to engage with it differently. Yeah. Do you mean in how we're going to go about developing this infrastructure? Yeah, if you're thinking about the kind of, yeah, what is, what's missing, what, what would you like to see um, that could support that infrastructure to be developed? Yeah, it's difficult because obviously it requires investment and it's, it's you know, as you were mentioning, who owns this equipment, these facilities um, that are required. Um, what I'm seeing, you know, I, I'm, I've come at this from a very much the behavioural aspect, the behavioural changes, the skills that need developing. Um, it, it plays into um, this issue of, why people overconsume. What I found is when we've been sharing skills with people, though those people are so invested and engaged in the project because they've developed a new skill. They've been, their kind of self-esteem, their confidence has been enhanced by the process of working with these natural materials, which are difficult. You know, what we what we've kind of been channeled in our educational system into is 
to become consumers with who pay other people for their skills in the global south and we've been kind of disempowered in that way i think that plays into our loss of self-esteem which means we have to consume so there's it's a twofold aspect we we need the skills we need the kind of financial investment for the manufacturing infrastructure or we develop a kind of cooperative system of people with skills who want to share and pool resources and you know ideally would be setting up some form of mini mill um we we obviously need um a sweet spot in terms of mechanization which makes growing these crops viable right you know this year we did everything by hand we had 70 hours worth of hand spinning to produce one leg of a pair of jeans so yeah you know it begs the question why why is there such social disparity that you know our ancestors could do that and people in other countries can do that we can't um but yeah realistically during this transition during this paradigm shift we need to somehow develop um a mechanization at a mid-scale, at a humane scale, at a scale that doesn't um, exploit people or planet. Um, and yeah, I know we're, we're looking into that is all I can say. We're looking into um, developing with, with a you know, number of different people. Um, but it's not easy right now, um, yeah, to get that in-between in stage that we require. And that sounds like similar to what you were saying, Francesca, around the need for that sort of support, um, both financially, but also in a kind of, um, I guess, mindset and in interest investment as well. Um, is there anything you'd like to add on the kind of, yeah, that need for that infrastructure and maybe why, why we're finding it hard to do that? Yes, uh, so uh, actually I really like what you said, it's a mindset shift and it's from doing as well in sustainability, often the narrative is about doing less bad, but actually instead we need to do more good uh, for nature. Um, and there are so many different things that can enable that infrastructure, for instance, adopting, and, and many of them I've already been mentioned today, so adopting uh, regenerative farming practices, but also um, sustainable uh, sourcing strategies and diversity the fiber basket because it's true our clothes are made of very few uh, fibers generally but also we need to reduce the negative uh, negative impacts of fashion manufacturing on the environment and on people as well um, and create new tools to um, assist companies in assessing their um, impacts on living nature uh, but also maybe we haven't mentioned today as well in, uh, ensuring uh, traceability and uh, and transparency throughout the supply chain is also fundamental in this shift and also uh, new business models and strategies and frameworks for companies to really embed sustainability and and also new and compelling narratives uh, as well because some consumers still have the perception that uh, sustainable fashion uh, products are not uh, as beautiful or maybe they don't meet the standards um, of traditional fashion or also maybe buyers or customers uh, also feel that maybe um, alternative fibers are um, limited or not uh, um, affordable and and finally as well and that was mentioned also by others is that we really need collaboration because to really preserve and regenerate uh, biodiversity uh, it can't be done by one company in isolation but we need collaboration across brands but also with the media uh, governments NGOs and also so to campaign and lobby and actually accelerate policy reforms 
So lots to do. Lots to do. Yeah, so much to do. And I feel like I feel like we could talk about this for so long. There is so much in this. I think it, it all layers around how we engage as individuals, as collectives, um, how the kind of wider system shifts as well. Um, but I think we're going to have to start wrapping up in a second. But I'm going to ask actually each of you if you'd be happy to share um, one one question or reflection um, that you think people who are watching this could take away because a lot of people who are watching will be um, not involved kind of actively in the, in the system. So what's kind of one question people could ask themselves about about um, what they're, how they're consuming um, or what they're, how they're engaging in fashion. Um, and if it's okay, I will start with you, Francesca, because you were nodding. <laughs> Okay, well, actually, my last, um, I realized that my last answer sounded maybe a bit overwhelming. There is so much to be done. But actually, just because there is too much to be done, uh, we can't just wait uh, for policy reforms or for things to happen, but we need to act here and now and uh, at all levels. And uh, for this, uh, just maybe wrapping up on some of the um, things I mentioned before, we need also to combine the, the colonizing and decarbonizing agendas and it, um, also uh, really build on a plurality of voices and actions uh, that uh, also th they are based on really values of care, longevity and community values. And also that these solutions are very much rooted in places, but also that we learn from tradition in order to inform innovation and that we can build more uh, new and compelling, compelling narratives around fashion, the fashion system. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Alice, can I ask you to go next? Absolutely. I would just, yeah, just, um, I think that it's a really exciting point that there is so much interdependency on the success of building new systems and having a, a new and restorative approach to fashion and that from, as a designer, if, if you're a designer, um, like that's a really exciting space to be in, that, that there is room and space and a time to, um, have a different approach from the norm because I don't think that many of these I think many of these solutions don't fit into the model that we've already got and so it's a really um, sort of like thrilling place to be that it's sort of like landscape unknown and so much to learn from other people different industries like you might not think apply to yours because you're used to you know, having materials arrive at your studio not knowing what came before and so I think it's it's a really um, sort of exciting place to um, be overwhelmed with questions. Good questions. Thanks, Alice. Um, Lillian, do you want to go next? Yeah, I would like to have us think hard about how different fashion communities will be impacted by the move towards sustainable and regenerative. And by that, I mean communities across the value chain. Um, you know, fashion employs over 75 million people worldwide. And um, if we all, I think we all do need to switch, switch to recycled fabrics or regenerative fabrics, but what then happens with, um, you know, the farmers that were growing cotton or um, the people that are manufacturing clothing, if we're all switching to more locally based or obviously consuming less, which we do need to do. So, um, yeah, I think thinking about that just transition um, and, and having some real options and real solutions for these communities um, is going to be really key because that's also going to help us get government support in terms of new policies and new systems 
um, you know, making sure that there are better options for those communities and that we're kind of not just leaving and letting them figure it out on their own. Um, so yeah, I think that just transition is going to be key to think about. Thank you. Um, and finally, Justine, please. Um, I think I began by saying that we need to evolve from being a consumer species to a restorer species. And for me, this involves changing our mindset from asking what can I take to what can I give? Um, so I would suggest people support um, ground up cooperatives like Fibershed who are implementing tangible systems of um, verifying um, production from now on. You know, they have a climate beneficial verification, which, which holds producers to very high standards of accounts. So, you know, it, it's maybe contributing to, to ground up cooperatives that are already implementing some um, tangible systems for regenerating textiles and fashion. Great, thank you so much. Um, and I think, yeah, in all of those remarks, that that real importance of really, ho really holding the whole in in mind when we're working. So that means um, working locally, but also really thinking about that the ramifications that has globally, and ensuring that we're working together to to think about those changes. Um, so thank you so much, all of you. Um, and if you'd like to find more out more about regenerative design or any of the work that's been undertaken by our great panel today, then check out the links in the YouTube chat and across the RSA social media. Um, but finally, and of course, most importantly, just a huge thanks to our great panel. So thank you to Justine, Francesco, Alice and Lillian. And thank you all for watching. Um, I'll see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.